Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home. Listeners, especially those of you who are busy parents, a.k.a. moms, you're going to want to hear about this. Our sponsor this week is PrepDish. PrepDish is a meal planning service. Every week you get an email with a grocery list and a prep ahead list, and then all of your meals are ready for the week, and they are healthy and they are delicious. It's just like how the celebrities live, except you can get it super affordably. So if you have a crazy schedule and you want to eat well and you want your family to eat well, this is a huge time saver. Special offer, go to PrepDish.com slash Crime Writer, and the founder of PrepDish, Allison, will give you a two-week trial for free. That's right. For listeners of this podcast, it is a no-brainer. Go to PrepDish.com slash Crime Writer and get a two-week trial of this great meal planning service for free. Once again, that's PrepDish, P-R-E-P-D-I-S-H dot com slash Crime Writer. Hey, Toby. Yes, Rebecca. Do we have to start later this evening because you had one of those library board meetings to go to? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) How's that going, by the way? Well, we're getting a new library director. Our library director left to go to be the All right, we don't actually want to know how your library (laughs) board meeting is. I was just being polite, Toby. Come on. Uh, But I do have a question for you. I understand. So we got some good resumes, and we're going through them today. Were they in the Dewey Decimal System? (laughs) All right, all right. But, you know, we don't have any Amazon items for you to read this week, but that doesn't mean our listeners shouldn't go to Amazon.com and buy things. We'll have Toby read some Amazon items next week. Mm -hmm. But, Toby, I understand that you've been listening to a podcast that you'd like to recommend our listeners listen to because we might be talking about it next week. What is that podcast? It is Phoebe's Fall. It's an Australian podcast about a woman who falls down a trash chute, like many, many, many stories to her death. Hmm. But it's, it's you know, so far, I'm not through the whole thing yet, but so far it's, um, it's really good. Well reported. A lot of aspects to the case. All right, so we'll check out some of Phoebe's fall for next week. We're also going to catch up on In the Dark next week. Yeah. And what else, Kevin? Breakdown. Breakdown. So our listeners, the trial's on. get your uh, true crime podcasting on this week because it's going to be a grab bag next week and maybe we'll answer some of your questions too. So shoot us a note at crimewriterson at gmail.com. All right, guys, should we start the show? Uh, Toby, what do you think? Uh, this is getting a little weird. Should we start the show? Roll it. I'm 
I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and this is Crime Writers On, the podcast about other podcasts and also about journalism, pop culture, true crime, and this week, a documentary about a really divisive case. That's right. Today, we are diving headfirst into that Netflix documentary about Amanda Knox. We'll talk about why this murder case is so weird, why so many people can't agree on whether Knox was wrongfully convicted or wrongfully acquitted. We're also going to get the scoop from a real-life Brit on why opinions on Knox are so polar opposite on either side of the pond. And joining me to get all that done is my true crime co-author and real-life husband, Kevin Flynn. Good evening, Kevin. Buongiorno, Rebecca. (laughs) And also on the line with us is journalist, true crime author, former defense investigator, and licensed private investigator, Laura Bricker. Hello, Laura. Hello. And also on the line with us is our very favorite soaking wet blanket, (laughs) crime and noir (laughs) fiction novelist, Toby Ball. Hello, Toby. Ciao. (laughs) <laughs> it was a little unfair to Toby, the soaking wet blanket. You stole his thunder with that bonjourno. I know, I know. I know. Suck it, Toby. We did ask for listener wow. feedback last week, and I got several messages complaining about our treatment of Toby. I'll just tell oh, you that. So, right. sorry, Toby. How, how many of those were from my mom? Hashtag sorry, not sorry. <laughs> oh, my God. My parents asked me today how they could get the podcast. Really? Yes. I had to pull up the phone and find the app, and now I'm really aware worried that they're they going to listen. They're going to listen. Yeah. <laughs> Did they ask you because they saw your write up in Entertainment Weekly, Kevin? Entertainment Weekly? What is that? <laughs> is that a national magazine? That's right. Are and we on the must list? We're on the must list along. We're number four on the must list. As my son said, we didn't meddle and we lost you a book, but it's still pretty cool. Number four on the must list <laughs> is the These Are Their Stories podcast. That's right. Are Laura and Toby on that? No. On that no. List. no oh, sorry. <laughs> but you guys did not make the must list. But you know what's funny about the must list? Yeah, (laughs) what's funny is it it sort of talked about, you know, podcasters, Rebecca, as if if people know who we are. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, they only had a paragraph. They didn't have to, they they didn't have enough time to set it up. I was like, maybe you should mention the other podcast that a few people might know us from. But anyway, it was pretty cool. That was great. Yeah. And uh, we also got another piece of feedback, Kevin, your parents aside, um, Last week, you did a impression of our friend Wyrick mm-hmm. on the podcast. Well, it was, yeah, kind of an impromptu. And we actually got some feedback about that impression. So I'm just going to play okay. this for you real quick, okay? Sure, go for it. Hey, crime writers, it's Wyrick. Just heard the latest show. And apparently Kevin can't do an impression of me. Just wanted to tell you, it's really not that hard. What you've got to do is speak just about 26% louder than any normal person would in any social situation. Also on top of that, just add the urgency of delivering the nuclear codes personally. <laughs> so is is that good feedback? Is that something you can incorporate into your yeah, wire compression? I, I could, yeah, I could start working on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Toby, do you have a wire compression, by the way? No. <laughs> uh, and surprise, we also heard from the real Wyrick. Oh. Now, the context was that last is, week- Is he doing a Toby impression? <laughs> no. But last week, we were talking about the Bo Bergdahl case and saying that perhaps we should defer occasionally to someone who actually knows what they're talking yeah, about- no and kidding. Ask him to weigh in. And here's what Wyrick had to say. Crime writers, greetings. It's Wyrick. As you know, you're my favorite quartet of podcasters out there on the interwebs. If you need any expertise about the Bo Bergdahl case or any other military justice issue, Wyrick's always there for you. One caveat. Beginning today, the only acceptable form of remuneration for Wyrick's services is delicious moose meat. 
So if L Bricks will make with some moose meat, you've got an expert any time. Fire account. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's awesome. What is the most awesome part of it, Toby? The fact that he used the word remuneration and sounded like someone who actually uses that word in everyday language, or the fact that he gave Laura a brand new nickname, L Bricks. <laughs> I like the fact that we have to barter. <laughs> I like the fact he keeps referring to himself in the third person. He can't yeah. not do that. Yeah. He's kind of like a professional wrestler. They all refer to themselves in the third person. I'm going to take you out but the better. Ring. Now, Laura, do you think that you can come through, maybe ship some moose meat to the West Coast for our friend Wyrick? I probably can, but I'm not going to confirm or deny that on the air because I think it might be illegal to ship it across state lines. Oh. But uh, Christmas is coming, Wyrick, so you never know what may arrive at your house. Wait a minute, are you threatening him with reindeer meat now? <laughs> I'm just saying my husband just got back from a week in Maine and um, there's some unidentified things in the freezer. So they oh. may make their way to California. All legally uh, obtained, of course. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> so I'd like to get down to this week's business. We have a lot to talk about. Last week, I told the three of you and everyone else who listens to this podcast that we would be talking about Amanda Knox this week, the case and the documentary about it, which recently dropped on Netflix. So this is a divisive case. I know you guys all monitor our social media feeds. Toby, were you surprised by the range and strength of the reactions to this case that we saw on our social media feeds this week? Yeah, it was at first. And then it became pretty clear that it really was a huge difference in perception between U.S. people and British people. Kevin, what do you think it is about this case besides the U.K., U.S., you know, stuff that really fires people up still? First of all, I'm going to say, I think we sort of like stumbled onto a case that is even more divisive than the Adnan Syed case. I don't think we stumbled onto well, it. Yeah, Netflix excuse make me. a documentary I, I, about it. I, 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 well, uh, maybe we stepped into it. All right. Because, yeah, certainly there are people who have very strong opinions. And I'm just going to say, we love you on Twitter, and we want to hear from our <laughs> listeners. But let's just get this straight now. Whatever our opinions are, you're probably not going to change them in 140 characters. <laughs> so that's cool. Tell us what you think. But like they say in the Old West, smile when you say that. Put right. a little emoji or a wink on the end of that so that we know it's with love. Because there are a lot of professional agitators on both sides right. that are just looking for something about Amanda Knox and just jump in like a robot and try to take over the whole conversation. Amanda Knox trolls. Amanda Knox trolls. On both sides. Right. On both sides. Absolutely. Um, so we want to hear from not the pros. We want to hear from you guys. Agree with us. Disagree with us. Fine. I know everybody's got a strong opinion, but why can't we be friends? Indeed. Well, I'm going to give I, Was there an original question in there for me? The original question was, were you surprised by how divisive this yeah. case still yeah. is? Laura? Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Laura? Um, yeah, no, I think I am because this case has been going on for so long. Granted, it's gone on and, and it's resolved and then it's not resolved. And it just seems like even now I'm waiting for the next shoe to drop in this case to see where it goes next, because I still feel like it's not done, even though it is. There's some secret the Italian law that all of a sudden they can, <laughs> they can pull out again. And well, look, we found on the scroll. Much, like if you read up on the Italian justice system, uh -huh. I mean, it's really something. The <laughs> amount of times that you can go back to trial mm -hmm. like this, like you're convicted, but you're not really convicted until all of the appeals process. Like it's automatic that you're going to get an appeal and they're not even consider in a conviction until you've gone through this lengthy process lengthy process and even the court process is in itself 
very slow. So I, I'm waiting. I mean, I think something else could be coming. But just the level on both sides of people that are either like the people that really feel so strongly that she's guilty, like the people that we saw in the streets that were chanting, that were rioting, and the people that believe she's innocent. It's one of those issues that, you know, it's kind of like national politics in the U.S. right now. It is. And it actually does remind me a lot of the Adnan Syed case for that reason. And Unlike the Anand Syed case, though, where I've never really understood the pro-guilt like obsession from people who really are not related to the case, mm-hmm. I understand skepticism, and I'm not sure, I think maybe guilty, but the 100% sure guilty stuff, I understand the 100% sure innocent from someone like Rabia who actually knows him, because right. that's how she feels, Right. but I have never really gotten that I'm 100% sure. Someone who doesn't have a horse in the race. That's right. That feels that's so how, strong. That's how this case is, yeah. too, but the difference here is that there are, I think, some cultural reasons why, which I think we definitely will talk about. But for our listeners who may have been thankfully living under some sort of rock around this case, especially in the last few years, I'll just give a quick primer. Amanda Knox was an American student studying in Italy in 2007. She'd only been in the city of Perugia for a couple of weeks when her roommate, a British student named Meredith Kircher, was brutally murdered. Knox, who'd been dating a young Italian man named Raffaella Solicito, excuse my horrible pronunciation, I'm sure I will butcher some of these things. She'd only been dating him for just a few days, came home one morning and found Meredith's body and called the police. Long story short, Knox and her boyfriend were suspected, arrested and convicted of the crime, along with neighbor Rudy Gueda, whose DNA and fingerprints were found all over the scene. Rudy's were. Yada, yada, yada. Knox spent four years in prison. Her conviction was overturned. She came back to the U.S. She was almost re-prosecuted on some weird Italian appeal situation that none of us understand. And then finally, the highest court in Italy denied the prosecution's attempt to retry Knox for being an orgy-loving sex demon who hacked poor Meredith Kircher to death. Is that a law? Well, apparently it is. And now, according to documentary, from what we saw, Amanda Knox is living a lonely, Subaru-loving and cat-loving life in Seattle, Washington. Laura, what did you learn about the case in particular watching this documentary that you didn't know before? I think one of the biggest things is I had no idea that Amanda and is it Raffaele had only been dating for five days. Right. And I was like, whoa, I guess I had just assumed in all of the media reports that I had read or watched about this case over the years that this was like a little bit longer term situation. So that really surprised me. You also sent me a note about Amanda Knox and her cats as she's making dinner. Do you want to just share that observation uh, with the rest of the group? So I'm sitting down to watch this. You know, I watch these things on my lunch break and I'm sitting there and I'm like, oh, here comes Amanda Knox home at night. She's cooking and drinking wine and she's got a lot of cats. And I'm like, oh, God, she's living my life. (laughs) You're Amanda Knox. I could be Amanda Knox. You you drink better Uh, wine, I think. (laughs) What about you, Toby? Did you learn anything about the case that you didn't know before watching the documentary? Yeah, I didn't know a whole lot about the case to begin with. But to sort of go along with what Laura was saying, I think just like how fast everything kind of happened when she got to Italy I don't think she'd been there for very long, right? That, and then there's some of the cultural stuff I thought was interesting too. What about you, Kevin? I knew that there were problems with the DNA Mm -hmm. and that was, you know, in the final appeal, that was the big thing that was getting everybody worked up. I didn't know what the details were and it was like how they spelled that out. I was also really surprised at the intensity of the press coverage in the UK Mm -hmm. because I think in this case, unlike in the OJ Simpson case where you have White America and black America, they see the same things and generally come to different conclusions. I think 
people in the UK were seeing different things than the people in the US were. And that, I think, contributes to the different narratives and the different perceptions of the case. So during the documentary, we saw some of the evidence laid out. We saw, you know, that Amanda and Raffaele both in some way confessed or had something that could be called a confession that was later used against them. We saw the DNA evidence that was uncovered at the scene and Mm -hmm. then also in Raffaele's apartment, that knife with the two little specks of DNA on it. You know, we saw the crime scene photos, which was really interesting, that crime scene footage of them walking through. The documentary sort of portrayed it like there was all this evidence and they showed us all the stuff the police had, but then there really wasn't anything. So, you know, I've read conflicting accounts about that. Did you look up this stuff after we watched the documentary? I didn't. I was trying to make more sense of kind of the overall timeline of the case. So I was reading more about the different people involved in the case and not so much about any other evidence besides the knife and the DNA, which really reminded me a lot of a lot of the discussions we've had in the last few months about DNA and it being unreliable. It reminded me a little bit during the Jean Benet underwear DNA discussion um, with Henry Lee, kind of the same thing, just how easy it is for DNA to be accidentally spread like it was allegedly, or it seemed like it was in this case, not allegedly. Well, especially when someone is looking for it because they've decided who did it. You know, that's, that's interesting. Now, one of the things, Kevin, that I know that stuck out to you was that Rudy Guede, I mean, what makes this case so interesting and so singular is that they do have a suspect who was arrested and convicted, who there was a lot of evidence pointing to the fact that he did it. Yeah, he pled guilty. Yeah, yeah. And in his early communications, uh, while he was on the lam, and there's all this suspicion being thrown at Amanda Knox, I mean, he said this was not a person who was there. And he seemed to just throw her under the bus after he's already in jail. Now, you know, the idea that maybe he's ratting out an accomplice or whatever, I mean, there's a whole discussion about whether or not that story makes any sense or not. But the fact that you already have somebody in jail for doing this crime whose DNA is everywhere. Everywhere. You know, it just sort of it just seemed beyond credulity that investigators would continue to look so zealously at these other two people that they were somehow involved and and concocted a theory of the crime that it was just seemed so outrageous that it just was sort of. Sticking a square peg in a round hole. What did you think was outrageous in particular about their theory of the crime as it relates to the evidence? As it relates to the evidence? Yeah. Okay, well, you've got Rudy's DNA everywhere, right? But you don't have in the room, you don't have Raffaele's or Amanda's. So then that means, you know, the people say, oh, Amanda cleaned up her evidence. Like, how does she clean up her own DNA and somehow leave all of Rudy's? Right. And just the motive of the case, which is that Meredith was killed because she was a prude and that that somehow offended Amanda Knox so that her and her two male lovers, that they decide they're going to take turns stabbing her and slashing her throat. And it just was like it just did not make any sense. What about you, Toby? Did, did you think that the prosecutor's theory of the crime fit with the evidence that we were shown in the documentary? No. And I, Menini, he's also plays prominently in the book um, Monster of Florence by Douglas Preston. Yep. So yeah, a lot of listeners the, wrote to us and said, you want to know more about this guy? Check out this book. Now, tell us about that. So the Monster of Florence is basically uh, Douglas Preston, who's mostly known for writing fiction with Lincoln Child, I think. But he was in Italy and learned about this serial killer who was dubbed the Monster of Florence. And 
started doing some research into it and then had an Italian, I can't remember if he was like a former investigator or something. Anyway, Italian journalist, Italian journalist. So they go, they go looking into it and end up sort of turning up some new leads and, and following them and coming up with a theory of the case. But Menini ends up suspecting the journalist of being the monster of Florence and Preston as being sort of his abettor. So, you know, from sort of knowing him before from that book and then seeing him pop up in this documentary, I mean, I think he sees himself and he talks about how he liked Sherlock Holmes, but as being able to kind of see through the haze and be able to understand the grander plot that's going on and reading people and understanding the dynamics that would lead to certain things and understanding who is evil and who is good and, and all this stuff. So I think he like sort of has these morality plays in his head that he then tries to make into the reality of his investigation and sort of force these ideas onto the evidence. And plus he's, you know, I think he's sort of an old school Italian guy with old school beliefs about sexual mores and stuff. And so I think once he sets up this American harlot versus you don't really find anything out about Meredith Kircher, so I, I don't know anything about her. But essentially, he sort of has her as the foil there. It's like if Amanda Knox is one way, Meredith is the opposite. You know, she's angelic. She she will not like play these perverted games. He even said something like she's everything that Meredith is not. Yeah. And to go back to the book, Toby, am I right in remembering that Manini, both in the monster of Florence and in the Amanda Knox case, thought there were satanic overtones to both crimes. I think you're right. It's been a while since I've actually listened to it on audiobook. I listened to an audiobook too. <laughs> yeah. Well, he basically said that he saw the devil in her, and that's how he knew she was guilty. And all the evidence kind of followed that. That you know, he yeah. looked at her, he saw the devil, and so that he knew she was guilty. Yeah. So obviously, so it's like the prosecutors are the ones that lead the investigation in. I am not going to pretend that I understand. And we will talk about what the Italians said about how the Americans view their justice system. (laughs) But I'm not going to pretend that I understand it. We have talked about other places, justice systems many times in this podcast from other states that do things very differently. We've talked about Great Britain and how they do things very differently in terms of like sort of the rights and the process and the disclosure and stuff. We even, I think, I know you and I have talked about in South Africa, the Oscar Pistorius case, how there's an appeals process there mm-hmm. that's very different. This Italian thing, I don't want to say it's wacky because that's insulting. And I, I, we were drawing on caves back when they had their courts, right? Oh, what an asshole that guy was. <laughs> but I don't understand how it serves either the victim or the accused well. It doesn't seem to serve anybody well, this process. And certainly having a a prosecutor who's prominent saying, I see the devil in her and that's how I know she did it, is not a great way to start off building your case. You know, Laura, there was a lot of criticism about making a murderer, the the sort of singular point of view about it being pro-Avery. And we saw the Avery family and Stephen Avery's girlfriend and that we only saw the prosecutor, you know, sort of on tape in his like not so fine moments. This documentary, we have full participation from Amanda Knox herself, from Manini, who's in the documentary probably equal time to Amanda Knox. Also, Nick Pisa, the British journalist who we'll talk about in a minute, who who's the one who fed all of the tabloid fire around Knox in the case in the UK. Did it strike you how balanced taking, I think, Meredith Kircher's family is an obvious exception, but in terms of the prosecution and the defense, you know, we also had Raffaele Solicito in the documentary giving 2A. Did it strike you how balanced this was, how we were actually getting all of these point of views just right toward the camera in this documentary? 
Yeah. I mean, I feel like it was balanced that we had, you know, everybody was taking part, but I also felt like it was definitely designed to make you feel sympathy for Amanda Knox. So it was told in such a way that, you know, I felt like that was the side that I was supposed to come down on at the end of this documentary. But I had a hard time personally with the way that they set it up. I mean, I felt like it was just so staged with her sitting in front of this like gray kind of background, like school pictures gone bad. But the way that she was trying to look, it was like so rehearsed to me, the way that she was sitting there with that very sad look staring at the camera that I couldn't really concentrate on those parts because I was just like, ugh. But Laura, every God, single interview was done in this, the same backdrop, the same way. Yeah, it's completely it was just, equal in that way. I noticed it with her because I felt like she was just looking. She had this just like waif, childlike sort of pathetic. And, and I get it. She's been in an Italian prison and she's had a rough. But I felt like her particular part was a little bit more staged for sympathy. And I had a hard time buying into that. I think that's really interesting because you're talking about her affect and her affect yeah. was a big point in the prosecution yes. against her. And we heard a lot about that from our listeners on Twitter. We heard a lot about it in emails we received. And we heard a lot about it in a couple of voice memos we received. I'm just going to play a listener voice memo right now that speaks to exactly what you're talking about. Hi, Crime Writers On people. This is Meredith in Portland, Maine. I just want to weigh in on the Amanda Knox thing because I was obsessed, obsessed, like I'm sure all of you were, with that case and with that documentary. I watched it three times, I think, in the first 24 hours after it was posted on Netflix. And I think I it, it was so interesting. I, she seemed like such a reasonable human being, and yet you're looking and saying her reaction after the murder was incredibly weird, more than incredibly weird. I don't have an adjective to describe how weird it seemed to be. But at the same time, that does not a motive for brutal murder make, especially if somebody she's only known for two weeks or something and probably spent no time with. And secondarily to that, the only thing that really creeped me out about her and the confessionals, or what we call those when it's not America's Next Top Model, is that she called it make love and making love and ooh, the whole time. I don't know if that creeped anyone else out, but my God. If you've known somebody five days, is it possible to make love to somebody if you've known them five days? Anyway, these are my observations, and I love you all. Bye. Now, I think we all agree that weird affect is not a murderer make. There, right. There's no way to sort of decide how someone should be or shouldn't be after they come home and discover a murdered person in their apartment. But <laughs> taking our reason and uh, rationale and, you know, justice-minded warrior stuff out of it, mm-hmm. Did Amanda Knox come off as a little bit strange to you, Kevin? In present day or, or? Both, either or both. Well, you know, I'll, I'll say the video of her right after the murder, it's not flattering. However. Wait, which video? Her winking at her boyfriend? Yeah, like sort of in an embrace and the quick kisses and the she's got like the blank look on her face, you know, and the five day, we've been together five days and we've been making love like rabbits. And I'm like, yeah, like sometimes like when you get together with somebody, it's pretty hot in the beginning. Right. I'm not that I'm looking across the studio at you, but a couple of years down the road, (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't happen every day for five days. So what are you talking about? So I don't know if (laughs) right. I don't know if he and he has not been in as many relations. I don't know if he is trying to comfort her with with a quick kiss or she's what whatever that is. But you're right that that you you can't 
point to that and say, well, that's the sign of somebody who's guilty because right. we've seen it in all these other crimes. Right. And we actually had a listener who wrote and said, this is Jason G who said, what this got me thinking about how police in general can be so subjective and judgmental in assessing the way people react to certain situations. I mean that it seems to me, but for the belief that Amanda Knox was reacting inappropriately at the scene, she wasn't upset enough. She was kissing Raphael. She was becoming hysterical. The case may have taken a different course. I'm taken by this issue in light of the This American Life podcast made in conjunction with ProPublica earlier this year about two rape investigations in which the poor victim in the opinion of her former foster mother was not reacting the way you would when you'd expect somebody would when they'd been raped, which led to the victim being prosecuted for making the allegation up, et cetera, et cetera. Both matters, classic examples of investigators lacking objectivity and the whole affect issue is also an issue for Jason G. And then my question to you... affect is a big deal in this week's episode of Breakdown, the Justin Ross case. Justin Ross Harris, yeah. yes. As that goes on, right? What What is the appropriate thing? Look, you know, if Amanda and Raphael were slipping each other the tongue, <laughs> right? No, no, I'm, I'm like absolutely serious. If they were like heavy making out, that would be really weird. Now, you know, I see it and it's like kisses and pecks and... I don't know. It doesn't look good, and I don't blame people for saying it looks weird, but it's not probative. Well, what about her affect today? I don't Laura, know. Laura she said seemed... she seemed staged. We've had many, many emails, people saying that it seemed... Okay, she's on a soundstage right. with halogen lights right. and a boom mic and telling the story of the worst part of her life, Right. and she seems staged. They I, all are staged. Let me just point out one thing that I feel like people <clears throat> who watch this documentary, maybe I'm the only one who saw this. Mm-hmm. At the very beginning, Amanda Knox admits that she's strange. She says, I wasn't like other people. I've never been other li- like other people. I'm a little bit weird. I've always been weird. Yeah. People don't get me. That's why she was excited to go away because she she never fit in. Well, I was oh. going to say, you know what this just reminds me of so much is Bo Bergdahl. Right. Because he also had the affect that people couldn't figure out and he didn't fit in. And it's and the same thing. And we also made, you know, I made judgments listening to him based on how he sounded and how he reacted. And, you know, in the end, we found out there was something that was different about him. What were we going to say, Toby? Uh, to, I, I had a, a few thoughts. One is, I think seeming strange well it's a huge reason for a lot of you know i the uh west memphis three yeah but i mean that that was a big thing people were like those guys are strange they, they must have done that mm-hmm. so i i don't think it's that unusual i mean i picked up on that thing about amanda saying that she was weird she wasn't like other people and then Raphael, you know at the end he says you know i was a computer guy or i was a video game guy right so it is because I think he's like sort of a little geeky, too. And so it doesn't surprise me that particularly on his side, because he, you know, I think there was sort of intimated that he did not have much experience with women that, you know, meeting this American girl and having this first fling or whatever, like it doesn't surprise me that things got pretty intense pretty quickly with the two of them. And it also doesn't surprise me. It didn't seem to me. Like even when Amanda's kind of talking about her relationship with Meredith, you know, she's kind of talking about like little, like small interactions she had with her or like texts that she exchanged. But there's not a sense that they really knew each other right. very well. In some ways, it doesn't seem to me to be wildly surprising that in the disorientation of being in a new country, you're sort of in this sort of fling, this this sort of romantic foreign fling you don't really know this person, this thing happens. And it probably seems like just another super unusual thing that's going on in your life right then. You know, she acted weird. I think she probably is 
or was kind of weird, but it doesn't seem completely non-understandable to me. Trying to judge how people react after tragic occurrences. I mean, that was what probably most people don't know this name, but Cameron Todd Willingham, who was a guy who was executed in Texas for the arson murder of his family when it was almost definitely sure that he was innocent. And this this was a big, got a lot of publicity in the U.S. because it was the first time, I think, that before the guy was executed, people said there's pretty much incontrovertible evidence that he's innocent, and they went ahead and executed him anyway. But the case against him was really made because he didn't seem to be as sort of torn apart, inconsolable as people expected him to be. When in fact, he seemed like he was in shock. We hear it over and over and over again. It happens in the Adnan Syed case yeah. that he's too cavalier when Hannah Lee is missing. Yeah. There's that kid who was convicted of killing his parents on Long Island like 20, 30 years ago who was convicted primarily because he was able to talk so rationally about the murder to the police. He didn't do it. There's a lot of that. And I wonder, too, I mean, I'll just throw a, a dot on this eye. How much this has to do with how attractive Amanda Knox is? That I think that she does not look like somebody who's weird. She doesn't look like somebody who isn't like other people, who isn't accepted. She's a beautiful, beautiful girl at the time of the murder. She's still a beautiful woman, but she definitely had a very telegenic appearance. And to see somebody with a telegenic appearance responding in a way that you think is socially inappropriate... I think sends a different message than if you see somebody who is not telegenic, acting a little bit off the the spectrum or or whatever. It just it seems like I think that was that that's into part. It. I think that's part of the formula, which also happens to be the Foxy Noxy thing. Yeah, where the British press was able to find her social media profile, and she she dubbed herself Foxy Noxy, and you mix that in with the information that they're getting from Italian law enforcement about all this salacious stuff, and it's just this witch's brew of we're going to vilify this woman, not because she has a violent past, but because she's a tart. Yeah. That's what drove it. We did get an email from a listener, Mandy R., and this is a good transition, actually, into this email. Mandy R. says, I just watched the Netflix Amanda Knox documentary, and I feel that as a British person, I should start by apologizing for the existence of Nick Pisa. Oh, God. I can't begin to describe all the ways that he is an utter embarrassment to my country. You'll note that he writes for the Daily Mail, which I'm sure you know is a sensationalist right-wing newspaper, a.k.a. Laura Bricker's favorite publication. I <laughs> love the Daily Mail. <laughs> Nick seems to embody many things that the paper stands for, including rampant misogyny. I'm interested to know what you guys think about his closing statement, though. He justified the fact that he'd written things that were untrue by saying he had just relayed what he'd been told and couldn't double-check whether it was true because someone else would get the scoop. It seems that journalists have a responsibility to do their best to substantiate something before it goes to print. We also got a tweet from our listener, Cameron Taylor, who says... Pisa says he shouldn't have to fact check the police. Curious as to your thoughts and any relevant stories from your own writing. Laura, I'm going to come to you first. I think that uh, you and I are of a shockingly like mind when it comes to Nick Pisa. And I would love to, for you to be able to share your thoughts right now. Well, I'm, I'm going to be ostracized. I wasn't really as horrified by Nick Pisa as a lot of people were. He was a reporter. And behind you know, in the newsroom, a lot of reporters talk like this. We all get really excited when there's a big scoop. It's not necessarily politically correct. I mean, you know, as a true crime writer, I mean, I know you guys probably have the same sort of process when you're, this is awful, but looking at a case that would be a good case to write a book about, you're like, well, it's got to have this, it's got to have that. And you analyze it in such a way, like as a story. 
I found him sort of uh, refreshing in that he sort of peeled back, you know, what really goes through a reporter's mind when you are on a big scoop like that and you are on a big story. And, you know, I can say covering murder cases that I've covered, you know, I don't think this made me sloppy at the time, but I didn't go out and fact check everything that was released at press conferences from the police. I would try to go get more information. I would try to go talk to the family members or the friends or other people involved. But in a lot of cases, you know, it's perhaps different in other places, but in New Hampshire, you know, a lot of times people don't want to talk when a case is newly in the media, when something has just happened. And you are relying just on what the police are telling you because family members, friends, other people, they don't want to talk. So I would like to have a drink with Nick Pisa. So, um, you know, hopefully I don't lose too many listeners with that. But I think that a lot of reporters do sort of have that excitement about a good story that, they do get a little jazzed up and, and other people probably would find that inappropriate. I thought he was a jackass. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I get the whole, you know, there's there's deadlines. You're competing with other people. I get that you can't be expected to fact check the police. But the way he was portraying everything was so salacious. I, I think in order to be a good journalist, you have to be able to apply some judgment to situations. And in that situation... I think being somewhat skeptical about like, you know, violent sex orgy, they've flashed these headlines. And I know that's what what probably moves copy in the, the British tabloid press. Like you're either doing that or you're not, right? You're either playing up the most lurid aspects of it in order to sell newspapers, in which case just freaking say it, you know? Like I had this crazy, potentially lurid situation and I just played it to the hilt. Or if you want to be a responsible journalist, you know, you don't have to fact check everything, but you can express some skepticism about things that just don't seem right. Well, I agree with you on many aspects of your point, Toby. But I also agree with Laura that he came off as transparent about what he did in this documentary. He didn't he said what he did. And granted, he said it a lot in the documentary without seeming like he regrets it. I mean, that was just sort of his tone was very cavalier. At the end, I think he was a little more introspective. But the question I was asking myself is I was like, okay, he works for a tabloid. He was allowed all this access. You see him all the shots of him walking into the police station with the prosecutor who's like showing him all this stuff. I actually was like the entire time, like, where the hell is his editor? What is the paper doing printing oh, this stuff? Well, they're loving it back in London. That's the thing. And that's the thing that I think that he comes off as a villain. And granted, I know that in many of the respects that Toby mentioned, he actually is a villain in this story. But you can be a reporter and want to print exactly what the prosecutor tells you with all of these crazy lore details, which, by the way, did come from the prosecutor's mouth. We saw it come from the prosecutor's mouth. It is the job of the editor, especially if, like, if you work at a newspaper, the editor to say, yeah, we can't print that. You know, we well, can, but that's yeah, not how yes. that press works there. Right. Yeah. First of all, London is probably the, the most oversaturated media market in the world and still with a lot of print news outlets. And they are always competing. And then the tabloids, I mean, it is pretty cutthroat. Remember, these are the organizations that tapped telephones and paid people off. And if you want to know how they got Amanda's diaries out of jail, well, I could probably take three guesses and they all have to do with a bribe to somebody. And so is the editor any better? The editor is probably pushing him along. Right. He was transparent. He proved himself to be a wanker, <laughs> as they'd say in Great Britain. Now, okay, I'm going to pause here word. and just say, hey, I hope you're still with us, our friends in the UK, because <laughs> I'm sure you've been screaming at us the whole time you've but would been. You, would you have a queue. drink with Nick Pisa? Uh, no. 
<laughs> I don't know. I mean, no, I, I've seen this a lot. Laura, you probably see this too. When there's a big case and like the big city reporters come to cover it too, their mm-hmm. attitudes are very different. The way they interview people and treat people like, I'm never going to see you again, so I'm just going to do this. They are under pressure to get that story and not be scooped by other people. So when he says, you know, I don't have time or whatever, part of it's him proving that he's a jackass. The other part of him is showing how the machine is working. Right. I like that part. I like that he said what happened. Yeah. And but why. he said it was with zero humility. Wait, are you judging him by his affect right now? I am. <laughs> I think he's a killer. No, I don't actually think he's a killer. No, I mean again, I don't I don't have any problem with people competing for headlines or, or deadlines. You know, again, it's it's how are you portraying this stuff? Are you portraying it responsibly or are you portraying it for sensationalism? That's the part that I don't think he gets to. What you said before, Kevin, reminded me. So the Dartmouth College murders, I don't know if anyone remembers those sure the two do. professors. Mm-hmm. Well, I um, I grew up. Yeah, I grew up in the town where the two convicted murderers were from. So I went up to cover that story because I'm like, I know everybody there. I know all the people. Well, it was the same scenario that Kevin was just talking about where here's all the national media and the regional media and the metro media and people were printing anything they could, you know, they would talk to somebody that I knew was not totally a legitimate source and they were printing it because they were also desperate to have something that somebody else didn't have. So that is definitely a dangerous situation to be in. And that was a situation where a lot of people felt very burned by the media because of how that little town was portrayed, much like the little town in Italy was portrayed. And people there still feel upset. I was reading something today that, they, you know, their reaction to this documentary about Amanda Knox, how they still feel like their little quaint village was portrayed in a very different way than actually it was in real life. Beautiful little town, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when Pisa was talking about how he didn't want to get scooped by other people, it read to me like his apology for getting all the stuff wrong that he got wrong, like saying, oh, well, I was under a deadline and I didn't want to get scooped by somebody else. It wasn't just the the breadth of the coverage was not just regurgitating what the Italian authorities were. It's going off and trying to dig up stuff about Amanda Knox and her private life and what's happening to her in prison and building that up into this whole big other narrative that feeds the whole image that she is crazy, that she's willing to kill and that she deserves to be stuck in this jail. You know, I'm sure it was a very Spartan jail, which is why she could have used Havenly to to decorate her space while she was incarcerated. Could she have, though, used Havenly? If they allowed her to get a smartphone, she could have downloaded the Havenly app. Yeah, yeah. And If uh, only. If only. And then she could have worked with an interior designer and found, like, what can I do with this? Horrible con- Italian con- prison yeah, cell? yeah. <laughs> What can I do about this cot? You know, and they would say... My, my weird L-shaped cell? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> here's, here's a nice thing we can do with this weird toilet. Havenly is a great app for those of us who uh, want to have a nicer home and are looking for ideas. I went on the Havenly app today and I talked with my personal interior designer, Shut Eliza. up. You did? I did. When I talked, I mean, I just... You could... I chatted with You the, texted. Yeah. I used my phone and my thumbs. So we took some photographs. I took some photographs of um, the dining room area and I said I didn't really care for the wall coverings. We don't have any wall coverings. Yeah, you have all these finger paints. Oh, you mean the art. The art, yes, Yes. from when the kids were five. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, I I think it was like time to do some grown-up stuff there. (laughs) So, um, you know, the response was really fast, and Eliza was great. She wanted, she, it, it wasn't just a, 
I wrote, this is the thing I'm going to tell you. She asked a lot of questions about our lighting fix. She loves the lighting fixture, by the way. Oh, great. Thanks, Eliza. And, you know, like, <laughs> what are the kind of things that you want? And she was really reactive. And it's like having an interior designer in your pocket. Wow. So the Havenly app is great. You can get inspired and they'll help you with a free design chat. And your Havenly online interior designer, remember it's Eliza, say that Kevin said hi. <laughs> uh, uh, she'll walk you, or he will walk you, right through an easy four-step design process to create the dream home that you deserve. So download the app today at the Apple App Store and use code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. What was that code again? It's uh, code CRIME. CRIME. At checkout, you'll get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. Very cool. With if only Amanda Knox could have gotten that app. Yes, and she, she probably could have remembered code crime. <laughs> crime. Crime. <laughs> she should have. <laughs> yes, and remember, oh, wow. when you're you know, getting ready to go to court for your appeal, you want to look your best. You which do. is where Mod Cloth comes in. Oh, yeah, Mod Cloth. Yep. It's your go-to spot for fashion as unique as you. By the way, Toby is suspiciously silent during this ad break. I'm a little worried about it. Are you still there, Toby? He's watching basketball. Baseball. <laughs> Baseball. <laughs> Modcloth has a, a broad range of styles, everything from the adventurous to the quirky. Uh-oh, did I say quirky? You did say quirky. Yes, quirky can do it. Also, they've got a great thing right now for Halloween. They do this t-shirt on there that I love. What does it say? It's got like a skeleton, like a like a rib cage, and then like a red, bright red heart, right, and it's like yeah. a ringer tee. It's so cute. I like the one with the ghost that says, be my boo. <laughs> So great stuff for mod cloth, outerwear, shoes, accessories. Super cute dresses. Super cute dresses. Right now you can shop their colorful collection and find all your new fall favorites. Go to modcloth.com and enter promo code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off an order of $100 or more. They have sweaters, right? They do have sweaters. Because it's sweater weather here in New Hampshire. It is. There's no ugly sweaters either. They're all great. You can get yourself a Ken Bone sweater a at nice Modcloth. <laughs> Nice red Ken Bone sweater, yeah. What was that promo code again, and what do you get when you it's enter it? It's Prime, and you get $20 off an order of $100 or more, because you're going to spend $100. You're going to, like, get a lot of stuff. <sighs> I can spend $100 in two seconds at ModCloth. Yeah. ModCloth.com and the promo code at checkout. Is Crime. Crime. Make every day extraordinary with ModCloth. I want to pivot our discussion now to an Amanda Knox-related trend that we saw on our Crime Writers on Twitter feed and in our inbox this week. I believe Toby mentioned it earlier. I think one listener summed it up perfectly, so I'm just going to read her email. Her name is Shara M. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing her name. M? Shara M. And would be her last name, first initial of her last name. This subject, Amanda Knox is referring to, is no discussion in my home. My husband and I agree that we will not agree on the subject. So in order to prevent needless arguments, we don't talk about this case. My (laughs) husband is English. I am American. Ah. I don't believe that Amanda had anything to do with the death of Meredith. My husband believes the opposite. The UK media was saturating at the time. Guilty. It was nonstop and very damning towards Amanda. I've mentioned the documentary to him. He said he's not quite ready to go 12 rounds with me over this, so I might have to watch it alone. I hope that he will reconsider. Anyway, I just thought y'all might find it interesting that my English husband and I, his American wife, have such a polarizing opinions of this case. And I will note 
that even though she says she's American and her husband is English, she spelled polarizing with an S. Just gonna throw I just it out noticed there. that. She also said whilst. Whilst, yes. They've been together well, too long. But then also y'all. Exactly. So what's up with that? It's a cultural it's, it's, mishmash in Shara's house. Yeah. Now, because Shara wasn't the only person we heard from who expressed this huge difference in American and British opinions about Amanda Knox's guilt, I reached out to someone I hope could explain it. She's been on the show before. Her name is Dr. Elizabeth Yardley, and she's a criminology instructor and researcher at Birmingham City University. So bonus, she's a real-life Brit. Yeah. So I'm going to play that conversation that Kevin and I had with Dr. Yardley earlier this week right now. We'll be back in just a few minutes to talk about it. Hello, is that Rebecca? It is, and I have Kevin here, too. Hello. Hi, Kevin. How are you, Dr. Yardley? I'm not bad, not bad at all. We put a call out for um, feedback about the case from people who had mm. feelings about the case, and we have noticed a big difference in the feelings that we are hearing from our listeners in the UK versus our listeners in the US. So mm. I was I was hoping you could just give us some insight into how the Amanda Knox case is viewed in the UK. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what's what sits kind of quite uncomfortably for for people over here is the the impact of of this kind of documentary, this kind of media product on the victim's family. So there's there's an awful lot of of sympathy and concern for for Meredith Kirch's family uh, here in the UK, because when this case happened back in 2007, it was something that that felt quite close to people in the UK. So Meredith was a a 21-year-old student studying on the the Erasmus scheme at a European university. And there's an awful lot of of UK students do that. They go and take this this year out somewhere else. So this idea that she could have been anybody's sister or anybody's daughter, it just felt very close um, to, to a lot of people over here. And especially given Meredith's mother, how sort of quite quiet and dignified she's been with the whole thing, as as well as all the the other members of the family, uh, I think I think it's it's felt that this is a, a bit of a, a kind of assault on them in a way. Um, I mean, this is a scar for them that is never going to heal. But but this documentary, I think, for a lot of people, did feel like it was it was just picking away at that scab and opening up this old wound again. So to rewind, at the time of the crime, it seems an awful lot like, well, here in the U.S., the focus was on Amanda Knox, that in the U.K., the focus of the story was primarily on Meredith, or was it more on the more tabloidish, sensational aspects of Amanda Knox's personality? Yeah, I think it was was a bit of both, really. So there's a concern for for Meredith Kirch's family because of that that closeness that that people felt to to her um, as an individual. Um, but also a lot of the information, or pretty much all of the information that people got about the case, came via the media. And it was incredibly sensationalised. And we saw um, in the documentary, the, the Daily Mail journalist, Nick Pisa, you know, he's presented as this kind of grief vampire um, who was you know, really, really awful kind of comments that he was coming out with, you know, about girl on girl crime and all the rest of it. So that was that was what we were being fed, essentially, right. at, at the time through through our tabloid press. So that very much did influence things as well so does that mean looking back that perhaps you realize the diet of information was rotten yeah i think so i think i think this this documentary has made a lot of people come out and say well hang on a minute we've got a new villain here you know it's it's no longer amanda knox 
it's now you know, the, the media, the, the tabloid press who were, were feeding us the information, who were kind of telling us about the case. And I think since this case has been much more in the way of people doing their own research into cases and finding out that their own information, uh, researching cases online, trying to get hold of legal documents where they've been made available to the public. But I think back in 2007, it wasn't quite like that. And we've seen the surgence of the, the web sleuths and the online detectives and uh, and people discussing cases on, on forums like Reddit and that type of thing. So people are more prone now, I think, to, to independently re- research these cases. But back then, we were very much still heavily reliant on what the media were telling us. How much of this do you think the attitude about the case in the UK? I mean, we saw a little bit in the documentary among the Italians is about the American factor, you know, this kind of nationalistic idea that, you know, Americans tend to insert themselves into other countries' business. <laughs> There's certainly some beef between the U.S. and just about every other country in the world in terms of pride, in terms of, you know... Well, um, the ugly American And thing. the ugly American factor. Yeah, I'm just I'm curious to know if you think that plays into this at all, this, this idea among, especially we've heard in our listeners in the U.K., a lot of them still think Amanda Knox definitely did it. Yeah, there is. And I think when when I come across cases like this, when there's an individual involved who's from the US, they tend to be very vocal about their position and their their right to have a say about the case and and their involvement or not in it. And I think that's something that sits quite uncomfortably with British people, um, especially with with the more kind of traditional value set that, that, you know, it's not appropriate to talk about this, that you keep quiet and you you put up and shut up and justice will run its course. But Amanda Knox has been very vocal. She's been wanting to control the narrative around this. And and of course, that's, that's that's absolutely fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But people often associate that that kind of pushiness with behavior that's not appropriate. And it, it, just, it hasn't sat well with, with people, I don't think. So I guess what I'm hearing you saying is, is what we might see her doing as self-advocacy because she says she's innocent and she's trying to you know make sure people know she's innocent and she doesn't belong in prison. Is seen as sort of... Uh, being uppity? Yeah, being pushy and, and, and more likely to make her a guilty person. Yeah, I do, I do think that's that's the way that, that a lot of people are, are seeing this because she, she always seems to me to be quite egocentric to, to to be um, putting her case across, you know, it's it's all about about her, and this is how I experienced this, and this is what I went through, and you know, that's not a crime, that's absolutely fine. But I think it's it's left quite a bad taste for for some people the fact that you know she's kind of taken center stage here. But yeah, it is it is that idea of well, don't be so vocal about it, essentially. Can I get your opinion as a criminologist for a second here? Let's suppose for a moment that we don't already have someone who has been convicted of killing this woman. Can we look at these other people, the, the theory that perhaps there was some confrontation over someone being prudish about sex and that Amanda and her boyfriend and this uh, third man, Rudy, killed Meredith because she was a prude? Does any of that think- make sense? It doesn't make a lot of sense to me, no. But whenever you have a a homicide investigation, the police should be pursuing multiple lines of inquiry. They shouldn't, you know, catch one ball and hang on to it. Um, They should be looking at at various different persons of interest. So who else is it that lives in the area? Who else is it that visits the apartment? Who lives downstairs? You know, what do the social networks of these, these people look like? And I think right from the beginning, the, the police became incredibly fixated 
on uh, Amanda Knox and Raffaella Soloshito. And that was that was it, basically. And that kind of tunnel vision, I think, has really, really hampered this case. And I think maybe I'll probably prove the, the point about how Americans get fixated on the, the science and that the rest of the world is fixated on some <laughs> other parts of the thing. You know, the, the, the idea that Amanda Knox and Raphael could clean up all of their DNA while at the same time leaving all of Rudy's DNA everywhere... Can you understand why Americans and Brits are just not seeing eye to eye on this? Yeah, I think so. I think there's there's a very kind of there's that emotional element to it here in in the UK of feeling that that proximity to to the the victim and her family, and not taking quite the kind of objective sort of scientific view. Um, that, that people across the pond have taken who've said, well, actually, what's the evidence? What does it look like? What do we have and what do we not have? And when you look at the Silly, cold, hard uh, facts sign of the case. <laughs> <laughs> no facts, evidence. The facts, yeah. <laughs> exactly, kind of the most important stuff. Um, but yeah, I think it really does highlight the continued role of, of the media, especially the tabloid press, in giving people their opinions um, about cases. But I think I think that ship is slowly starting to turn around because even in the UK, um, discussions that I've had with some people have said, well, I actually went through and read through this transcript and looked at, you know, this evidence and, and this particular narrative. And, and yeah, I don't think that she was involved at all. So so there is that, that different view there. Yeah, but it's, it's an interesting one, definitely. What do you think? Do you think she was involved? I think there's there's just not sufficient evidence to be able to say she was or she wasn't involved. I think that the investigation in the beginning was was so awful. It was, as one of my colleagues often says, a casserole of nonsense. <laughs> it's just there's just not enough there to be able to, to build a case. And and I think that the, the police as well, the the police who were were investigating, they were so keen on on managing the impression of themselves that the, the public had they were very keen to say incredibly quickly we've got the people that did this we've been incredibly successful yes this is a, a murder case that's, that's gaining the attention of the world's media but we know what we're doing and and i think they were more preoccupied with with their presentation of self than they were with actually getting to the truth because finding the truth and building a case are as we know two completely different things they are. And very often a, a cop looking at a suspect and saying, I can just look in her eyes and I know she did it is not necessarily the way to build that case. No, absolutely not. I hope that you will still be friends with us after we've had this discussion about the case. I mean, I think that um, I, I don't think we're completely of the same mind, but I think that we all agree that evidence is evidence and, and cases should yeah. be investigated properly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the timing of this documentary has been really interesting because we've seen um, we've seen the Adnan Syed case in Syria. We've seen Making a Murderer. And there's a real appetite out there for people to get to grips with these complex cases and, and listen to all of these different voices around it. But but I think in the UK, we're not quite ready to talk about Amanda Knox in the same way that we talk about Adnan Syed. We find it really difficult to, to cast her in the, the role of a victim, albeit the victim of a, a miscarriage of justice. So so it's really interesting. But but I think the tide is turning. Well, you guys got to get on that. <laughs> we have. They don't exactly. have to get on that. They can do what they'd like. <laughs> Honestly, Dr. Yardley, I can't thank you enough for uh, chatting with us about this. We were really hoping to get your point of view and you agreeing to do it is making a big difference for us. I know that. Oh, that's OK. No, it's good to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. This, this is it's a case that's never going to go away because it might be 
solved in one respect. You know, the criminal justice process has come to an end, but, but it's still unresolved. So, so I think it's something people are going to be talking about for, for many years to come. So, Laura, what jumped out at you at what Dr. Yardley had to say about the British point of view around this Amanda Knox case? I think just that it was so clear that people felt one specific way about Amanda Knox. You know, it seemed like there wasn't a lot of wiggle room there. You know, I was also struck by the way that the Italians perceived the Americans and that attorney that said something like in America, they were drawing buffaloes on caves when our court building opened. So I think it just really, you know, that it was such a cultural thing that there was this sort of perception of Amanda Knox as an American and that she was by defending herself, by speaking up and advocating for herself, they had this very negative connotation about that. To us, you know, I'm like, God, if I was accused of murder, I would be right out there defending myself and advocating for myself. And to see that that was so prejudicial for the people in England that were watching this case was really interesting to me. That it was crass, that it was like not what you're supposed to do when you are being chased for a crime. Toby, what stuck out to you about what Elizabeth Yardley had to say about the differences in America and British opinion about this case? I think there's a sense abroad of sort of American cultural arrogance. And I think uh, while I was watching the documentary and then listening to this, I kept thinking of Ryan Lochte. And <laughs> really? Okay. Yeah. It just, I mean, he's, he's obviously a, a much more extreme Ug- example. And was of actually an ugly guilty. American? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's this ugly American stereotype. You know, it comes out in a whole bunch of different ways. American exceptionalism, which you can't run for president and not say you believe in American exceptionalism. We don't want to have Americans brought up before any kind of international court and all these different kinds of things. So that I think when an American does get into that kind of trouble abroad, I think it adds a little extra something for an American to sort of be sort of at the mercy of another country's judicial system in that it's not the kind of thing where the American government or the American nation can kind of come and extract them from or kind of bluster them out of it. I I want to throw one more thing into the pile about the way that other people view this case outside our country. Let's look at the timing of this case. This was 2007, right? Yeah. So this is year seven of the Bush administration. This is the post 9-11 America that has now dragged all of these other countries into these conflicts to say dragged obviously there's going to be different differing political opinions on this but because of our initiative with this weapons of mass destruction thing after 9-11 now all of these other countries are involved in a conflict that is a result of our initiative as a country saying like we are in control of this and if you're our friend yeah you'll do it with us right and now this is 2007 when things are clearly not what they appeared to be at the beginning yeah I don't know how that works out in Italy but you're right in Britain yes. the whole Tony Blair is yes. Bush's lapdog that yes. was uh, and there is a political yeah. conversation going on this is during the election season 2007 that the American perception outside I remember I remember having people watch that 2008 election seeing coverage of our election and the ugliness of it and the dirtiness of it and which election are we talking about I'm um, 2008 Oh I mean, my God! The campaigning it was, seems so quaint. It's, it's adorable, <laughs> it seemed, right? Oh, how adorable! But in that this was. documentary, we saw Donald Trump in this documentary <laughs> weighing in. He was he was already injecting himself into the political conversation, you know, eight years ago, and then also four years ago, he was coming out and giving opinions about things. This was the election where we had all sorts of just weird stuff going on, and this is really a very very bad point 
for America in the view of the, the world outside of America, right? So now you have this person who has ostensibly committed a crime. The Americans are saying, no, she didn't do it. She didn't do it. She didn't do it. And you don't know what you're doing. Like, we just need to go there and get her and bring her back. <laughs> and it's like, look at the other decisions that we've made for these other countries. Add to that the thing that Elizabeth talked about that some listeners also wrote us about, which is the victim. Meredith Kircher is very much the Ron Goldman of this Amanda Knox story. Mm-hmm. Her story is really not told at all in the media coverage of this story. So, well, no, not in the documentary. Exactly. It's minimized. It was a big part of the British exactly. coverage, which also helped to shape the British public perception of the crime, where it really was about justice for Meredith. Now, you can argue that Meredith got justice when Rudy went to jail right. for her murder. Right. And Amanda Knox is not part of this crime. Right. Toby's point about the ugly American, that's not a new thing. That's been going on for decades, in part because, and we've we've seen this when we go out of the country, you go to some place where they speak a foreign language. Well, you go to some not place- foreign to them. Not foreign to them, yeah. <laughs> they call it language. You're so ugly. Yes. <laughs> Remember we're in the Dominican Republic at the casino and yeah. this guy from he's from New York, of course, and he comes up and he's trying to he's trying to like throw like money at the dealer and she's like, No, it's possible. And he gets some man, he's like, How come they don't speak American here? Right. He's right. like, You're such a jackass. Yes, exactly. You are the ugly American. Yeah. Plus, why are you trying to double down on a twelve? <laughs> You know how many times nine comes up? Okay, you're, yeah. you're going down, you're going down a tunnel here. 25% fewer times than a 10. Okay, land the plane. Land the plane. <laughs> <laughs> I thought we were segueing. Yeah, oh. Yeah, I was waiting for the ad. We were going to Foxwoods. Um, <laughs> again, I think that's why the British, you know, felt aggrieved by the whole thing because they felt like uh, Meredith was minimized. And you have to decide if you're a documentarian, how long do you want this to be and how much time are you going to devote to Meredith? Because, and, and I mean this sort of in a, in a very respectful way, this isn't her story. That's right. It, it isn't. This story is about Amanda Knox and what happened to her. We know what happened to Meredith. It's part of the case. And the obsession with the case is about Amanda is, Knox. It, yes, this it is, is why. And I, I know, and I agree with you. And it's not. Don't mean that to be disrespectful. It in no but that's, way diminishes. Yeah. But I understand the point of view of people in the UK. And it was our listener, Tina Gaspard, who coined the, uh, she was very much Ron Goldman as, a, as an expression, but she was. And you know what? In the OJ case, that was not fair because he was also a victim. And it was, that was very much a story about the victims. Mm-hmm. But this is a different kind of story. And I think that we experience this with our writing that like, at some point, the victim part of the story is not the story at a certain point in every story, but it really isn't what this documentary was about. And I think that every other point of view around this story was represented. I don't know. I think that part was fair. But I do want to just do our final wrap up on this, which is sort of the critique about the documentary, the how we feel about it. Laura, what was up with the making of this documentary right now? Did it fill a void? Did we need it? And if you were to give it a grade, what grade would you give it? Oh, I think, you know, right now, I think there is just such a um, need for true crime stories. People are so interested in true crime where it's like possible miscarriage of justice or wrongful conviction cases where people can go on the Internet themselves and read everything they can find about it and come up with their own theories. And I feel like this case fits into that. There's so much information out there that you can read about this case and so many different sides of it. I don't know if it fills a void, but I guess my question is just at what point is enough going to be enough with all of these true crime spinoff shows? I mean, at what point are we going to reach the saturation level? Because right now I feel like 
every other week we have a new true crime, you know, show or podcast or story that's out there. It's like the 90s was a really big time for true crime. And I don't know if we're having that sort of resurgence now. I felt like this documentary was, I don't want to say superficial, but it gave a, a kind of an overview of the case. I think for people who already knew about the case, there probably wasn't a lot of new information, except you got to see Amanda Knox up close a little bit more. And those weird um, animation reenactments. Oh, my God. Taiwan. Taiwanese uh, anime <laughs> cartoon. What was that? They do that for oh all my. sorts of cases. They're crazy. Oh so goodness. prejudicial, though, with yeah. the strangling and that was so oh weird. So I don't know that I forgot about that. That might bump up my score. So I'm going to go with a B um, plus. It was well made. It was well done. I don't think it was anything new, but I, you know, for people that have been following the case, but I think it was an interesting look back at the case. So Toby, for you, why was this documentary made? Do you think it filled a purpose and what grade do you give it? Does it fill a purpose? I guess it does. I mean, I think we're kind of, again, we're, we're sort of in this like patch of high quality true crime documentaries. I mean, I think we've also gotten used to these several episodes, many hours, you know, very close examinations of cases. So when you get a 90-minute documentary, it seems really superficial. And sort of reacting to what Laura said about at what point do we sort of reach the saturation point, you know, one kind of issue I have with the sort of genre as a whole, they're basically all about white people and usually about the murder of white women, with the exception of Serial Season 1, and then with uh, Bowerville. And that was one of the things I really liked about Bowerville is because I think taking a look at sort of larger societal issues using a crime as sort of the focus, I would hope that that would be sort of a direction that maybe this could take. Because I think a lot of what we, we end up looking at are these are these very sort of compelling cases that have circumstances that make them have twists and turns and have things you can kind of debate about. But I don't know that they're a very good assessment of where the U.S. justice system is as a whole, so that I think sort of investigating that a little bit more in the true crime genre would be where I would kind of like to see things go. I realize that's kind of my personal interest. So all that being said, I would probably give this like, you know, maybe a B minus. For what it was, it was well done. And I think as much, it was his name, Nick Pisa. Yes. Yeah. Laura's like, new boyfriend, find, Nick Pisa. Yeah, exactly. I know. Yeah. Sorry, Ken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he is super cute. Um, <laughs> but it, as much there. as I, I kind of found him unappealing, I think that was kind of a good sort of inspired move to have him be that big a part of what was otherwise a pretty much straightforward documentary. What about you, Kevin? Did this documentary serve some purpose in the true crime sphere? What do you think of it? What grade do you give it? I'll give it a, a B plus. Yeah, I mean, uh, I thought that it did play into this recurring theme about justice gone wrong. And certainly that you had a figure like Amanda Knox, who was essentially slut shamed into a murder conviction and then the media witch hunt that was perpetrated to stoke feelings, you know, things that weren't necessarily true. Does it serve a purpose? I think it does because, again, it looks at another one of these Kafka-esque incidents where someone just is in a situation where they don't know how to get out of it despite the facts that seem to that seem to exonerate them. Seem to be obvious for seem us. Seem to be obvious. Yeah. It serves a purpose just like a really nice gift from Gromit does when you give it to <laughs> your best friend or your wife. A nice gift from where? 
from thegrommet.com. It's a great store. Wait, thegrommet.com. Yeah. Look, you know how like you like to shop in like boutique stores? Sure. You know, and it's like you go through it and you look at a bunch of stuff and there's like that one thing that you find. You're like, oh, I found this one thing. That's why I love the boutique store. Totes. This website is like that, but it's everything. Everything is in it is cool. Everything is cool. I'd like lose my shit over everything in the boutique store <laughs> that is thegrommet.com. Yeah, this is way better because, you know, like at holiday time, you're walking around the department store and you're thinking, what am I going to get Uncle so and so? And you just, you're trying to think of something. You go to Gromit and you look at all the neat stuff. And it's instead, it's the other way around. It's like, oh, that I'm going to give to Uncle Larry, and that's going to my Aunt Denise, and this I'm giving my wife because I don't know what else to get her. So what kind of stuff like would I buy you from the Gromit? Well, okay, maybe I might like the Snake Eyes wooden lawn dice. Oh, my God, you would actually love those. You imagine that, throwing yeah. stuff down? They also have an Aquapod bottle. It's like, you, you know, you take like those special candies and you put it in the thing and it makes the rocket basically out of carbonation. Yes. Yeah. See, now the Gromit is great because they have people that are scouring those boutique stores and those cottage industries and finding gifts that are unique and one of a kind and really fun to look at. Yep. So listeners, where you want to go is thegromit.com slash crime. And that's Gromit with two M's and one T. Every weekday, they put out a brand new product. Ooh, I love that. And some of the stuff, like, you're not going to find it anywhere else. So it's worth, like, going there every day. It is really fun. Yeah. It's a fun website to really look at and to shop at. And, you know, with the holidays coming up, I'm saying probably the best place you can go to find unique gifts. So this holiday season, give your gifts some thought. Visit thegromit.com slash crime, and you'll receive $10 off your first $50 purchase. So that's T-H-E-G-R-O-M-M-E-T dot com slash crime. You'll get $10 off your first $50 purchase. That's thegromit.com slash crime and receive $10 off your $50 purchase. Thegromit.com slash crime. 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 So now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little something I like crime to call- Crime of the week. <laughs> the crime of, of the, the week. week. Now, Kevin, this crime of the week was sent in by a listener, like many of the ideas on this evening's podcast. His name is Aaron, and this story took place in your place of origin, Western Massachusetts. That's where I grew up. Are you ready? I'm ready. Recently, a team of Massachusetts State Police and members of the National Guard arrived with several vehicles and a helicopter to the Amherst, Massachusetts home of 81-year-old Margaret Holcomb. Their raid wasn't to recover her cache of illegal weapons, nor to take down her mafia bookie ring. No, Miss Holcomb had a bigger target on her property, a single marijuana plant in her garden, tucked behind her raspberries. <laughs> she used her homegrown pot to... Oh, was her raspberries tucked behind her marijuana? <laughs> she used her homegrown pot to ease the ailments of old age, glaucoma, arthritis, and the occasional sleepless night. Oh. Now, medical marijuana is legal in Massachusetts, but Margaret Holcomb told a local paper that she hadn't tried to get a prescription because it's a tough process to get a doctor's approval and traveling to the marijuana dispensary the next town over and paying for marijuana grown by someone else would be too costly for her fixed income. Holcomb wasn't the only one targeted by the huge marijuana raid. State police spokesperson David Procopio told the Gazette that authorities had also seized 43 other plants from various properties that day but none of the other property owners, including Holcomb, were charged with crimes. 
So here's my question for you guys. Laura, do you agree with a full-scale raid to remove one marijuana plant from an 81-year-old's garden? And if not, what laws would you rather your tax dollars get spent enforcing? Oh, my God, this poor woman. No, I I do not agree. I think this is ridiculous. You know, marijuana is such a small thing compared to so many of the other things the police could be working on. But I would suggest that they use their tax dollars on some community policing and communications, similar to like the Bangor, Maine police Facebook page. Now, that is a good use of their resources. If you haven't looked at it, that is my tip of the week. Go read the Bangor, Maine police Facebook page. Sign up. Go ahead and like the Bangor, Maine BA. NGOR main police Facebook page. The communications person doing their communications, I think, I don't know who it is, is incredible. It's so it's, great. It's a, it's a police officer. There was a whole story in the Boston Globe a few weeks ago about who he is and how he got into this job. And he's very dry. He's very funny. <laughs> very funny. All right. So, Toby, do you agree with a full scale raid to remove one pot plant from an 81 year old's garden? And if not. Yeah, totally. <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. I guess that, was a, it, that I, was a great use of, of police, <laughs> you know, hardware and stuff. I hope they were launching like concussion grenades and tear gas and stuff <laughs> to take her down. Coming in with a bear cat. Are you saying you don't know? You just don't know what you're walking into. I feel like you Um, think that maybe this question was poorly worded and you're just trolling me right now. You know, old people and their (laughs) drugs. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I guess probably that there's probably a little bit of overkill. On which law should your tax dollars be spent enforcing? Well, they should be helping OJ find the real killers. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Kevin? Well, first of all, I want to know how did they get probable cause to raid this house. Excellent question. With an 81-year-old woman with one marijuana plant. Tucked behind the raspberries. Tucked behind the raspberries. Which are prickly, by the way. Who turned her in? I just no don't idea. know. I think that that's crazy. I don't agree with this. What I would like to see them use the money for is to look for grow houses, places that are illegally mass-producing marijuana. You know, they can find that by just uh, looking for which house in the neighborhood is using 10 zillion megawatts. They actually cannot. There's a Supreme Court case around this, my friend. I will send you the literature later. Fuck the Supreme Court. <laughs> Can't believe it. And by the way, I would argue that marijuana is not so bad. There are worse drug problems here in New England. There, there are. Like yeah, why fentanyl. are you being so harsh, man? You're harshing Toby's mellow right now. <laughs> I think we should send this poor lady some brownies or something. <laughs> oh, send her some uh, brownies with moose meat. In you know what law some, I would like to spend animals. money? Uh, you know what law I wish our local law enforcement would spend money enforcing? Tell us. It's not really a law. But you know how when you're walking down the sidewalk and like people in front of you are walking like side by side? really slowly. <laughs> you mean like like down the hallway and the Law and Order credits? Yes. Taking up the whole hallway? We need a helicopter for that. Those people who sort of walk out of a store on Main Street are in front of you and have no situational awareness that you are just trying to get a burrito and you just want to walk around them. What is the matter with those people and where are the cops? when Because they don't believe yeah, that you want to get a burrito, Rebecca. <laughs> it's just like the people in the grocery store. It's the same thing, Rebecca. <laughs> you know what? It reminds me what they should actually be doing is getting people who throw their cigarette butts on the ground. Yes. Littering, mm-hmm. sure. <laughs> they're not going to get a federal year. grant for littering, though. That's the difference. They're not going to get a helicopter. And if they disposal. don't spend it, they don't That's get it. Right. Yeah. All right. We should probably wrap it up on that cynical note. Laura Bricker, you are on the Twitter, right? I am. It's at Laura Bricker. Toby Ball, I'm sorry for calling you a soaking wet blanket earlier, but I understand that your negative Nelly self is on the Twitter as well, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well then. <laughs> what is the handle, Toby? Uh, it's at Toby Ball NH. And if I can throw a quick pitch, if you're into this Americans in Italy and murdering people, 
The Talented Mr. Ripley by Patricia Highsmith. It's a very good book. It is a good book. I, I thought a fun movie. I don't know. I liked it. What That's about you, good. Kevin? Have people tweet with you. Uh, they can find me on Twitter at, at Nick Pisa. <laughs> No, his Twitter's blocked. I tried to go follow him. Oh, my God. Okay, people, I'll give you my Twitter account if you already know. But please, please. Jesus, I just I just don't want the abuse. Please smile when you say it, at Kevin P. Flynn. And you know what? You can find me on Twitter. I'll tell you to wear in a second. But I don't want any more pictures proving your Amanda Knox case of tabloid pages that show that she and her boyfriend bought bleach at a store because they did not. They did not buy bleach at a store. It did not happen. And they used the bleach to clean up all of their DNA? Only their DNA. It it didn't happen. It's not actually evidence. I love you guys, but a photo of a print article from a tabloid does not prove to me that that actually happened. So, that being said, you can find me on Twitter, at Reb Lavoie, where you can also find me on Instagram, at Reb Lavoie. This is going to be our second worst week on Twitter ever. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. You're super demanding. <laughs> our show is also on Twitter, at Crime Writers On. You can reach us by email with your questions and voice memos at crimewriterson at gmail.com. Want to get our newsletter or support the show by buying stuff on Amazon? You can get all that done at our website, crimewriterson.com. If you listened on iTunes, please consider rating and reviewing this show. It really helps us out. And while you're browsing for podcasts, check out our other show. These are their stories, the Law & Order podcast. Our very, very handsome line producer is Henry Lavoie. Our theme music was performed by the New York Ska Jazz Ensemble and used with their permission. This show was recorded in Studio C at Partners in Crime Media, a.k.a. the studio we built in a closet in our basement, right between the hot water heater and the plastic boxes full of clothes that don't fit me anymore. On behalf of all the crime writers, thanks so much for listening. We will catch you later. Now it's time to move on to my favorite part of this podcast, a little thing I like to call the Crime Crime of of the the Week. week. This, going with the theme of the rest of our show this evening, was sent in by a listener, Mm -hmm. this Crime of the Week. His name is Aaron, and this Crime of the Week, Kevin, took place in your neck of the woods, the place you came from. My mother's uterus? Ew. No. Yeah, can we just start over? (laughs) Yeah, especially since your parents might be listening now. Exactly. Exactly. If you hate feeling like an adult stuck in a dorm room, you might appreciate the new Havenly app, the easiest way to decorate your home. Once you've downloaded the app, you'll have access to free home design consultations. And if the consultation inspires you, you can work with a Havenly interior designer to lay out and shop for your dream space in an easy four-step design process. Use code CRIME at checkout to get 20% off your design and furniture purchases. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.